Today, we're speaking to a scientist who by himself has discovered over 50 new species of shark. And stick around for our shark bite where Sierra reveals how the ocean may soon be taken over by AI robots. G'day everyone, welcome to Shark Week the podcast. I'm your host, Luke Tipple. Just like a patient being examined in a doctor's office, there are ways of telling if the ocean is sick. For example, we could look at sea temperatures and deduce that rising temperatures might put local sea life in danger. Similarly, we can look at ocean currents, which recent data indicates might be undergoing radical changes. And you can look at sharks. How they're doing is largely a reflection of how the ocean as a whole is doing. As the sea's most prolific apex predators, they sit at the top of the food chain, which means that if the food chain is unhealthy, or in other words, if the ocean is sick, then the shark's population will be unhealthy too. My guest today calls sharks the canary in the coal mine when it comes to the ocean's health. He's Dr. Dave Ebert, and as a man who's led dozens of explorations and found by himself over four dozen new species of shark, He's uniquely placed as an expert on how sharks are doing around the world. He's here to talk to us about what sharks mean to their ecosystems and how he's been so successful in finding unusual sharks where no one else has been able to. Dave, welcome to Shark Week, the podcast. I've really wanted to chat to you for a long time because, frankly, you are an inspiration of the, you know, 500 some species of sharks out there. You've discovered, what, over 100 of them? Uh, well, I've, I've, I, I've identified about a hundred, but I've probably, I've only officially named a little, a little over 50 because it's the whole process to actually name them. Discover them is easy and the fun part to do. Well, I thought if you discovered them, you got to name them. Why are they oh, yeah, oh, yeah, no, you do. No, you do get to name them, but you just got to take some time to go through. You have to write up the description, go through a whole peer reviewed process. You can't just sort of wave a wand and say, Hey, this is a new species and stuff. How do you actually go out and start identifying a new species? Like isolating a, a region of the world to go target or is it fishermen that's bringing you catches like what is it i never go look for a new shark but what i'll do is i'll go out to like some part of the world and i'll try to identify i'll work with like local ngos and, and government agencies fisheries to try to help them identify the sharks and rays that occur in their waters and it's going through that process they'll find sometimes i'll find range extensions i'll find species that people haven't seen for decades and then of course i'll find new species so they're kind of like there's a three categories. But if I say like, I'm going to go look for a new species, you'll never find it. You have to be going out to do something else. And then like, oh, hey, I found like three new species. The things that I'm looking for are smaller species that are not charismatic. And yet they'll tell you more about the health of the environment than a white shark will, believe it or not. Because those things are quietly slipping away and disappearing. And very few people outside myself are really paying any attention to it. So I'm trying to bring awareness to these species here that, that really going to tell you more about the health of the environment. Well, let's talk about that because it is something that is part of kind of the, the shark trope that, you know, they exist in every marine environment that there is, that they're in indicators of a healthy environment, but probably you uniquely out of anybody would understand exactly what that means for the environment. So how important are sharks as indicators uh, of the health of a particular ecosystem? A absolutely important. Sharks are the canary in the, in the coal mine, really. By the time you see a problem with white sharks or tiger sharks, it's going to almost be too late because everything else below them has been probably knocked down. And things like, you know, shark, like white sharks, tiger sharks, they, a lot of them feed on smaller sharks. And so if those smaller sharks are gone, they're not going to have any food there and they're going to have to move away. 
And so like those, it's absolutely critical, these smaller species you're looking for. And I, I talk a lot about uh, overfishing, but in a lot of these, a lot of the, you know, Africa and all these sort of tropical areas, you know, in Asia and stuff, a lot of areas have like had things like mangrove swamps, which are really important in the life cycle of a lot of these sharks, particularly like sawfish is a good example. And they've been like uh, destroyed for other types of thing, aquaculture or other types of, of activities, you know, beachfront resort hotels. But those are critical habitat that people often overlook as far as the environment. Why are sharks in every little nook and cranny of the ocean and even freshwater systems? You know, when I talk about sharks, I'm also talking about the rays because what a ray is, is just a flat shark. If you take a shark, you squash it down. That's really what a ray is. What unites them is they have a cartilaginous skeleton. Now that compares to all the bony fishes, like your cods, your rockfish, uh, you know, halibut, those things. And there's about, there's over 35,000 species of bony fish compared to just under 1,300 species of sharks. And so what the thing is, why the sharks have been very successful of adapting to the, all these things is because there's been a niche available to them. So they've been able to like invade some species, invade freshwater habitats. You know, you go to Australia, Northern Australia, the freshwater river sharks up there, things like bull sharks can go up there. And then you have pelagic species like a, uh, uh, oceanic white tip sharks. You know, one good example I like to, I, I talk to people about is like, you think of like a mega mouth shark. Here's this like 20 foot shark we didn't even know existed until 1976. It gets 20 feet long and you think like, wow, it's got these big teeth, but the teeth are just really tiny. And actually this is like a 20 foot shark that's geared just to catch krill. What evolutionary forces like cause something to like just to feed on krill, for example. Well, I mean, from what I understand there is krill are fairly bioavailable. You know, there's a lot of it and they don't have to work very hard to get it. So they just go around scooping it up. So they're, they're getting the energy that they need and the calories that they need to grow large. But what you're saying is no one really understands why they'd be doing that. Yeah, exactly. People think about these, the big sharks, but you think about there's things like a, a pygmy dwarf shark. It doesn't get any bigger than the palm of your hand. It gets maybe eight inches long and that's as big as the shark gets. And yet they'll feed on smaller things. It speaks to the success of the sharks. I mean, you've got, they've been around for over 400 million years. And, uh, you know, most of the modern species have been around for, you know, last, last 100 million years or so. I wonder, is there another order of animals that has the diversity that sharks do? Yeah, I mean, as far as like a, as far as like a, a, a high trophic level predator, I mean, there's really, I can't think of anything that would exceed the sharks. I mean, it's not like you're going out finding like, you know, a couple dozen new species of bears every year or new species of wolves or, or, or lions or tigers or anything, you know, you, you know, but sharks, you're finding 17 new species of sharks a year on average. Well, I tell people like over 25% of all the shark species we know today have only been discovered in the last 15, 20 years. And so there's a lot of new species being found. But when you put that in perspective, okay, we find, say, 17 new species this year. If I tell you, like, on average, there's about 18,000 new species of everything, of all taxa described a year, it kind of puts it in perspective that there's really not that many shark species out there compared to a lot of other taxa. So they're very, they evolved to be able to like, occupy these different niche, but, but they're really not as diverse as some of these, like you mentioned, ants. Frogs, there's seven, 8,000 species of frogs. When I talk about 18,000, I'm talking about, you know, flowers, plants, a lot of, you know, basically everything. Given a amount of time, is it inevitable that a, a group of animals will occupy every little space that it can? Or is it yeah. just unique to sharks that they're doing that? I think, I think like we look at like, take like the bony fishes and stuff, they occupy a lot of habitat. They've actually, they're more prolific in the freshwater. 
in the marine environment. Interestingly, if you look in the in the fossil record, sharks actually were more prolific in the freshwater environment. If that's one area they've probably gone in reverse, they're more prolific in the freshwater environment. And then they adapt and evolve, become more prolific in the marine environment. Whereas, you know, you have a few groups, you have, say, you know, freshwater stingrays in Brazil, you have the river sharks, which are freshwater, mostly freshwater we know about in Australia and Indonesia and that part of the world. So they were, sharks have really uh, receded from a lot of the freshwater environments that they occupied a couple hundred million years ago. And, and you said it was about 200 million years since we saw that plethora of freshwater species. Is that about right? Most of the modern sharks evolved between about 100, 150 million years ago. So as they start, as the modern sharks started to evolve, all their, their, all their freshwater ones just went extinct, essentially. Now, you talk about the small sharks being a passion of yours. How important are they? I think they're very important because you have to figure out what they are first before you can learn something about what do they feed on, what's their role in the environment and stuff. And so these little sharks, this gets to the really the heart of the thing is like, what is their impact in the marine environment? Like you get these little things like like a Pondicherry shark, which we think might have gone extinct, used to occur off India, Sri Lanka, and that part of the world. And so we think like, well, what ha- what happened with these things if they if they gone? What in, what environmental impact have they had? You can't really answer that because no one's seen one in over fifty years. Um, you know, I mean, I'm going off here in a few weeks to look for a shark, the lost shark of Ecuador, species hasn't been seen in over 60 years. And so if we can find it, then they'll tell us something about what's going on. If we can't find it, then we got to start thinking like, what impacts is the loss of this diversity have on the environment and the ecosystem? So why would you go after that species in Ecuador now? If it hasn't been seen for 60 years, what started this mission? Well, I've been doing this for, for decades, really. I just kind of really have galvanized it over the sort of the last 10, 20 years now, really, with this lost shark stuff. It's a lot of it, why I've been doing it now is, is a lot of it's funding. You know, people fund things for like white sharks and stuff, but you say like, I want to go try and look for some sharks that haven't been seen in decades. You know, people are like, that's great, Dave. But as far as, you know, finding support, I've been, well, the Save Our Seas Foundation have been terrific. It's difficult to get funding in general, but when you want to go look for different species, it, it makes it even more difficult. There's just not a lot of organizations that will fund that type of research. Do you think you'll find the shark in Ecuador? Do you have any good leads? I, I got some good leads. I've already got people in country. I don't just sort of show up there like, hi, I'm Dave. I'm looking for some sharks. I, I work with uh, organizations, NGOs, and, and uh, colleagues I have in country. We're already out, act, actually out looking for it right now to see if we can find it. Um, a lot of it's just awareness. And I've got, I've had a pretty good track record over my career finding things that people haven't, haven't seen for decades. Um, if I find it, it'll be like Christmas, Christmas in August if I find this thing. So, which is always kind of nice. That's amazing. Why is it that you are so successful versus other conventional scientists? I go out and I talk with the fishermen. That's, that's the key. And a lot of people, like in my profession, they very leery of the fishermen. And, I, and again, I'm talking about going to like, you know, smaller villages, artisanal fisheries and stuff. And of course, a lot of times I don't, you know, you go to Zanzibar, you know, I don't speak Swahili, but I work with local people there. It's kind of, people think it's kind of cool to go out in the boat, you know, you see like on Shark Week, you're out diving or doing something really cool, but you're only one person on one boat in the ocean where if I go to a village, I'll have 50 to hundred boats coming in every day. And so my time just goes up like, you know, 50, a hundred fold of, that I might find something. What you find interesting sometimes is some of the older fishermen They'll look at it and they go like, oh yeah, we used to see this all the time, but we haven't seen it for decades. And you talk to the younger guys and they're like, well, we've never seen this thing. That starts to get the, gets the whole journey more exciting. Like, okay, I have some people that actually know what this thing is. 
but we haven't seen it for a while. So you start asking them like, where did you see it? Where did you used to catch this thing? And so like you start talking with them, maybe you'll develop a relationship with a fisherman. I mean, I got, there's, there's fishermen in villages I've been going to for 35 years now and I'll show up there and they'll still start waving. I may not have seen for like five years or more and they'll start saying, hey, Dave's back. That's always kind of a cool feeling to, to, to see that you've left that kind of an impression on some people. Do you ever ask them the question like, what happened to these sharks? I imagine they're just overfishing it. Yeah, they'll, they'll say, they'll, it'll be something along the lines of, we used to catch them all the time, but we don't see them very much anymore, or we don't see them at all. Some of the places that I've gone back to over decades, it's the same story. Like, you know, sawfish are a great example. You know, 35 years ago in East Africa, you'd see them occasionally. They're still around, but they've never seen one. I mean, they'll, many of those younger people will never see one in their lifetime. They're older people. The older fishers are like, oh yeah, we used to catch these all the time, but we just don't see them anymore. Now, when you're talking about the the smaller sharks, you're talking about sharks that are maybe up to what couple feet long normally. Yeah, yeah. Are the are the fishermen targeting them for food traditionally? Yeah, the way the pattern goes, they used to catch a lot of the bony fishes, and then they slowly got fished out, and then they start fishing the sharks, and then the sharks start disappearing. And again, the thing I tr- emphasize to people is a lot of places I go to. These are people, if they don't go out and fish and catch something, they don't eat. You know, there's not like they can run down to the local grocery store and pick up, you know, uh, some steaks or some fish for dinner. I mean, they literally like, if they don't, if there's a bad weather, if there's a typhoon or something, they can't fish. And then they got to live on whatever kind of reserve they might have, which is not going to be much. You know, you have to walk that line between, you can't tell people not to go fish something because they're not going to eat and you just cannot feed everybody in the world. You need to let them fish. So it's, it's an interesting kind of socioeconomic situation as well as an environmental issue. Is there such thing as too many sharks in an environment? I would say no. Uh, there can never be too many, I think, in my, envir- in, in my opinion. The sharks are, tend to be regulated by the avail- availability of food. But, you know, in North America, we've actually done some really good stuff here as far as, you know, with things like the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which increased the marine mammal population, which is, hence has increased the white shark population along the coast here which has also benefited a lot of the shark populations. And so I, in the U.S. and Canada, we've actually done some really good, I think, in my opinion, some good policy that have actually had sustainable shark. And so you should stand back and say, hey, here's an example of somewhere we did pretty good. We did a really good job because everybody gets tired of hearing about, oh, you know, sharks are collapsing or going away. But we did something good. And there's some other examples that we should, you should highlight those so people think, okay, there is hope. There is a chance we can do something. Yeah, there is. Uh, I mean, there's data from NOAA that says, for example, the the sharks of the Atlantic seaboard are largely, in their opinion and their data, very well managed. And the mm-hmm. catch limits that they institute are sustainable and survivable. Now, people will probably find that distasteful a lot of times. Uh, it, it actually results in these kind of bifurcated opinions where we've got fishermen who are like, oh, there's way too many sharks. And mm-hmm. I've had several of those conversations where like, hey, you're not on the water every day. Like we are depredation where the sharks are catching their, you know, eating their catch is getting out of control. We need to kill all these sharks. There's too many. Or the other side of it, which is Noah's saying, hey, this is about where they should be. And we're setting the catch limits just to maintain sustainability here. Where do you stand on that? Like, should there be zero take or is... You know, well-managed sustainability, the goal across the entire bony fish and elasmobranchs. I think there should be within the, within the elasmobranchs, like you get things like some of the hound sharks, the smooth hounds and stuff. You can sustainably fish those. And it's been shown you can, because they're, they're reproductive things, they, they mature pretty quickly. 
within two to three years, they're already mature. They give birth for annually. So there are some species you can fish sustainably, but then you get other things, you know, like some of the things like dusky sharks, you know, they, they take, you know, decades to mature. They live very long. They don't, you know, they may not start, you know, breeding until in their, you know, they've been 20 years or so. And so those things you can fish down quite a bit. Where are we in terms of sort of real-time data and feedback? Because when I look up like the IUCN database, for example, or Mm -hmm. NOAA, there'll be data from 10 years ago or assessments from 10 years ago. And we're supposed to take that as an assessment of today's stock. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't seem right. And then NOAA's data appears to take in like last year's catches. But the results of that catch might not be seen for, as you say, 10 or 20 years in some species. So yeah. Is that a little short-sighted? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it, I, I can speak to both because I've been involved with the IUCN for decades now. And the thing is, they, they do the assessments about every 10 years for a species. So those are going to be outdated. We've just gone through a process over the last sort of four or five years updating them. But still, by the time you actually get them processed, they're already out of date. And that's like, you know, you publish a scientific paper, it's almost out of date by the time it gets published because it, it just takes time to go through a peer-reviewed process. With, a, with some of the like NOAA data and stuff, you could probably get more, I, I, I don't want to say quite real-time data, but you can, if you look at it, you could probably get data with, that are maybe within two to three years old. So you can manage something a little, more, a little more current than like say with IUCN data. So it really depends on the data set. In some cases, you might have state data might be even uh, turn around faster than even the NOAA data. Depends on the state and where they are, but you could find that all that data is more, is more current. So it really depends at what level you're looking at the data. Again, if you're looking in the U.S., Canada, you got you got some good data sets to work from. But you go to a lot of other countries, you know, it's just you're not going to have that that type of data set. Well, I know your life and career has been driven by you know curiosity and the desire to explore and find all these sharks. Why don't we wrap up this podcast with your favorite story of you know the species that you found that really inspired you the most? Uh, you know, the, every it's like. It's like people ask me, I said, well, it's the one I haven't found yet. It's the one that inspires me because I, I, that's always that next adventure. But if I had to share one that was probably one of my favorite ones in the last few years, I was in Sri Lanka uh, and I, just before I'd gone to Sri Lanka, somebody, a colleague there had sent me a picture of this shark they couldn't identify. I was like going, man, I think that's like a new species of shark. I haven't seen this thing before. I went there and I found some of the fishermen and I showed them a picture of this shark on my phone. And they're kind of like looking at me going, okay. Yeah, yeah, come back tomorrow. And I was like, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. And son of a gun, I came back the next day and they caught one. And I was like running around doing fish pumps and everything. Well, I asked them, I said, well, how often do you catch these? They said, well, we caught three yesterday. We threw them back because they're not worth anything. And this was a shark that was completely new to science. So that was probably my most exciting one in the last few years. So you probably know we had uh, Forrest on this podcast a little while ago, and I asked him a question of how many sharks are left to be discovered, and he didn't have an answer for me, but he said, ask Dave, so I'll ask you the same <laughs> thing. How many sharks yeah. are left to be discovered? I can't tell you how many are left to be discovered, but I can tell you that in the last 15 years, 25% of all sharks have just been discovered. So that just gives you a perspective. We've been averaging about 17 new species a year, so yeah, I think Forrest was thinking in a couple dozen or something. I, I, I think you could find probably easily another hundred species or so. And I'm a little bit guessing, but that's just based on what we've, we know. We, we figure what 25% of a, of a group like sharks have only been discovered in the last 15 years. It's kind of inspires you to go out and find more. You know, there's a lot more out there to be discovered. And then when we get alien technology and we can safely roam the, the deep depths of the oceans, we'll probably find another thousand, right? 
Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On technology, you'll start finding some things I think we didn't even know existed out there. So I'm, I'm excited, especially a young person coming up. It's a great time to be an explorer. What would you say to the up and coming scientists who are looking to work with sharks in the future? Is there a lot for them to do? A lot of work left to do? Oh, oh yeah. Lots of, I mean, I'll never get done, you know, a fraction of what I'd like to do in my lifetime. And I'm at a point now in my career, I'm trying to, I try to treat, especially when I go to a lot of countries, I try to help as much as I can to share my knowledge and train younger people now. Um, but you know, the biggest thing in this field is, you know, you have to be, you have to have a, 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 a positive attitude. You have to be, you have to be driven. You have to have a focus you ha and you have to be persistent. And above all else, you have to be passionate. And if you have those qualities, you'll carry a long way in the field. And in this field, like I said, I've been doing it for, for decades and I have not lost my passion. I get as excited now as I did 35 years ago. Well, from my perspective, I hope you find another 100 before you're done. That'd be really cool. You know, keep boosting those numbers. Yep. But uh, thanks for the inspiration, mate. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Luke. It's time for today's Shark Bite, where Sierra brings us a cool ocean story to end the show. What have you got for us today, Sierra? Today, we've got a story about how scientists are using AI to spy on ocean wildlife. Ugh. This one's going to be scary. I know it. All right. <laughs> let's hear it. So one of the problems, troubles, issues with studying marine life is we don't actually know what they're doing when we're not looking at them. A lot of the you know ways that we study them are disruptive. You know, it's big motors or cameras. They get in the way. It doesn't look like their natural habitat. So scientists went in to design a fish that is accepted by other fish. So it is, you know, going to be totally quiet and navigates like a fish would. I've been saying stuff like that about sharks for a while. Uh, what are sharks actually doing when we're not there bothering them with, you know, big boats and chum and machines and divers and all the rest? We're not seeing natural behavior. So how are they actually doing this? How are they powering it? What does a fish look like? Yeah, so it's this, it's three feet long, it's 22 pounds, and the head of it contains the electronics in the camera, and then the belly of it is where the battery and the motors live. And then the thin part, the back part, is made of silicone, and then it has two cavities that are then filled and emptied with water that help it propel and move. That sounds remarkably complicated, but what, <laughs> what type of data are they hoping to get? Uh, really, they're just trying to see both, you know, there's a camera attached to it, so they're trying to see what the environment looks like when, you know, humans aren't down there kind of mucking things up. Uh, and then they're looking for that eDNA data um, to figure out like what larvae and algae are in those certain areas. Right. And they're sifting that out of the water samples. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Well, that's fascinating. I hope, I hope the research is successful, but I'm kind of fearing seeing robot fish swimming all around us when we're diving next time. <laughs> right. AI is going to take over the ocean next. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the place where I thought we were safe. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for that, Sierra. I knew yeah, I'd be scared by it. <laughs> okay, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank you all for listening, and I do hope you learned something. If you want to connect with Dave, he's a fascinating guy. He's full of shark stories, and the work he's doing is just Absolutely incredible. Check out Lost Shark Guy on Instagram. You won't be disappointed. He's finding stuff all the time, and I can't wait to hear what he finds in Ecuador. Until next time, I'm Luke Tipple. Thanks for listening. Shark Week, the podcast is produced by Delve Media for Warner Brothers Discovery. 
Luke Tipple is the executive producer, and our writer and producer is Yale Rice. Our researcher and associate producer is Sierra Kehoe. For Warner Brothers Discovery, the executive producer is Christina Bavetta, and the coordinating producer is Corinne Wilson. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review and subscribe to help our mission to give sharks a voice.